0: This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, which is the worst named podcast in the business. My name is Matt Wolf and I will be your host. Now, before I introduce my fine guest for this episode, I'd like to talk about this podcast for a moment because it is our very first episode. Uh, so, for some background, the Game Designers of North Carolina is a guild of tabletop uh, game designers who, you know, surprisingly reside in North Carolina. We've been meeting re- regularly since April 2013. And when we started out, uh, most of us really didn't have a lot of exposure or experience in tabletop game design. And over the years, we've really learned a lot as a group. And so we wanted to kind of use this podcast as a way to share some of that knowledge. Uh, So the goal for the podcast is to present a lot of information that is pertinent to new designers, but also hopefully uh, offer some content that really any kind of tabletop designer can find useful, and we'll be sharing a lot of news of what our group members are up to uh, in the design world as well. So with that out of the way, let me go ahead and introduce our guests. First guest for this episode is Mark McGee. Say hi, Mark. Hey, everybody. That's, that's <laughs> close to high. That'll work. And our other guest is Burke Drew. Hey, Burke. Hey, how's it going? For our first episode here, our topic is getting started with tabletop games and specifically designing tabletop games. That seemed like a pretty good topic for the first episode. I yep. think, think Burke, you may actually have uh, suggested this one. I can't remember anymore. Oh, cool. well, good
2: on me then. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Gold star. Good job. All right. But before we get to the main topic, first we're going to have our designer discovery segment. And we're going to talk more with our guest designers and their background. So we're going to get into that right now. We're going to start with you, Mark. When you decided to start designing tabletop games, why? Why did you uh, decide to get into it?
0: I went to graduate school for video game development and there's a time that I was between video game jobs, and that's when I actually started doing tabletop game design. It was mostly just to hone my design skills and to keep in practice while I was between video game jobs. Then later on, I um, I kind of get out of the video game industries full-time, and then I, I became more involved in designing tabletop games probably around the time that our guild was started in 2013. But yeah, mostly I started, stay in practice as a designer.
1: Cool. So... You, you you were between video game jobs in in the video game industry what was your job what were the jobs you were uh, in between
0: when i started out i was doing like flash games and web browser games and and small things like that later on my my most recent video game work those at a place where we mostly made digital versions of existing tabletop games i worked on hero clicks online uh, the company made the ios version of Quarkle and Warriors and things like that so that was kind of like a, a midway point kind of between video games and tabletop games.
1: Very cool. Uh, Bert, same question for you. So how, uh, why, why did you start designing tabletop games?
0: Well, I've kind of just been
2: noodling on game design for a number of years, probably <laughs> just 30 years or so, but nothing particularly um, as far as like a solid focus on design. And then a couple of years ago, I heard about the 54-card the uh, challenge that Dice Hate Me Games uh, started up, and uh, it seemed like a good time to finally just sort of indulge that particular passion that I had, which was learning more about how, how games work and trying to put some together and pull ideas that I've just been tossing around for years, try to put them into, into action. So, and uh, as as things happened to turn out, I was at the Escapist Expo, and a number of the game designers of Carolina were there playtesting games. And so I kind of walked over, introduced myself, and they said, you know, you guys told me, hey, we've got a got a guild and we meet. And I was like, oh, sweet. <laughs> so let's do this.
1: And you've stalked us ever since. Well, stalk, that's
2: that's a scary word. But <laughs> but yeah, essentially.
1: <laughs> I, I remember that. That was, um, I think that was the first or second Escapist Expo. I can't recall now. Um, it was the second to last um, yeah, and then, and then, yeah, then they stopped doing those, which is a shame because um, it, it was a nice, it was kind of a nice little expo that was in Durham, uh, North Carolina.
2: It, it was great for me because I worked across the street. I just <laughs> oh, you just, just yeah, walk yeah, right yeah. over, yeah. Yep, just walk cool. right over.
1: So you said you were noodling kind of designs in your head for thirty years. What's the first kind of thing that you can recall that you kind of were just playing around with?
2: The first thing that I can remember doing was Avalon Hill has done, in the past, did a lot of uh, Chit and Hex games. One of my high school teachers uh, introduced me to a game called Third Reich, which was strategy in World War II. And I remember taking it, uh, really enjoying that game and getting into this really deep strategy game, but decided I wanted to create my own variant that took it forward into like the Cold War. In like post-World War II. So without my teacher's permission, I started writing on his board (laughs) 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 and uh, figuring out, you know, totally making stuff up to how I thought it had all panned out. So, and then from there, I got heavily into D&D for years. and, And so that's somewhat like game design. You're modifying, you know, an existing system to kind of entertain people. I've always enjoyed that aspect of it.
1: Yeah that's actually a way that a lot of designers get started they play a game they they like the game but maybe they don't like 100% of everything in it and so they like you know i i'd actually try to change this little thing or you know potentially a, a large thing they will get the bug from from just doing that i know that ben rossett who designed brewcrafters his inspiration for doing brewcrafters was that he didn't like how the cards in agricola come out where you know they're shuffled and you get dealt out Uh, i can't recall how many cards you get dealt out at the moment Um, but he didn't like how that was just I, I suppose, too, random uh, for his tastes. And so that's how the design for Brewcrafters got started. And I think you can actually see that in the uh, end result. It has yeah. uh, some similarities to Agricola. Um, it's not at all the same. I mean, it is a you know wholly d- distinct game. But yeah, I think you can kind of see the beginning roots of that thought process.
0: Yeah, one of my first designs that I was working on was based off of a video game that I had made with some other people but I, I kind of wanted to take it in a different direction, but when you're collaborating on a group, you kind of have to make concessions, and and projects go different ways than they would if you were the the sole you know creative contributor to the game. So that's that's kind of what I was doing too. I, I was trying to recreate something that I had already been a part of the creation process in, but just taking in a different direction that I had a little bit more creative control over.
1: That's why I recommend the dictator approach. Uh, <laughs> that you <laughs> that works out much better for well for me. Um. <laughs> so Burke you've been designing uh, at least a little bit for for 30 years now. And yeah. Mark, when you were in the video game space, did you do any kind of like noodling around like Burke did like long before that?
0: No, most of most of my design thoughts before that were very strictly you know from the video game perspective which is even though they're both kind of games video games and tabletop games, they have very significant differences in the way that things have to be designed yeah my brain was not anywhere near tabletop design anytime before i would say uh after i graduated grad school
1: so obviously mark you have experience designing in the video game space burke did you do any other kind of design work other than tabletop games
2: not really in college i took a course which dealt with basically product taking a piece of software from start to finish, you know, design all the way through implementation, and the project that we chose was actually uh, was, a, was a game, and it was, uh, we computerized Nefotafl, which is a Viking game of chess, and um,
1: I was, had no idea how to pronounce that until right now, so thank you. <laughs>
2: there you go. Well, that's how I pronounce it, so. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a fun process. We we focused a little bit more on just sort of the user interface than we did on perhaps the AI. We were scrambling around right before it was due. Well, the decision tree was huge because of the way the game works, and I won't take up our time explaining it. Anyone who's familiar with it knows that you can, all the pieces move like rooks. So there's a lot of different positions they can move. So, so we in essence we created sort of a random random moves to make it look like it was playing the game for the amount of time for the demo. <laughs> <laughs>
1: fake it, yeah. We
2: had to fake it because we um, we spent far too much time on the glitz and not enough on the substance <laughs> of the of the game.
1: And w- what year in college was that?
2: Yeah, probably probably sophomore junior.
1: Okay, so that's why you guys spent so much time on the UI. You didn't you didn't have enough exposure to n- realize that the the hard work is all the yeah. the background the AI stuff, yeah. Yeah. Do you recall what kind of grade you got on that? Now I'm curious since you were just faking it for the uh, I, the demo. I think
2: we actually, well the the user interface to be fair, it looked pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, I think we ended up with a B on it. We totally uh Pulled the wool over the professor's eyes on that
1: one. And he didn't look at your code to see like, oh, what, Oh, what's this? This is just a uh, random number generator, or you know, wrapped in a loop?
2: No, no, he didn't. I don't think he. We ever had to turn in the code. It was we just had to do a presentation on it. That was lucky.
0: I've had I've had similar cases where you had to. We would showcase prototypes we've been working on, and we just had like cheat buttons on the keyboard. Hey, when you have to walk through this door, just hit the L button, and the the character will walk through. So <laughs> it it was. 100% unplayable by anyone who didn't know all the secret yeah. shortcut buttons on the board.
1: <laughs> Man, you, you video game guys taking these shortcuts here. Well,
2: yeah. yeah, to be fair, I think we did have the decision tree sort of, it was, it was creating what the, what the moves were, but it, when it reached a point where it needed to decide which was a move, it had a bunch, at least at the beginning of the game, a number of the moves were equally as good. So, you would have to go really deep to to be able to figure out what would be the, the best move, so at that point, rather than spend all that effort <laughs> getting it right, it was like well let's pick you know pick one of those equally
1: viable moves very cool I've never uh, never played it, but I, I am familiar uh, with that game that you named that I cannot pronounce Mark, when you started to design tabletop games, was there anything that kind of surprised you you know based on your kind of preconceptions coming in
0: yeah I mean I I was surprised at the kind of breadth and different types of, of new new things that are done in the tabletop. Since my exposure was in video games, there's a decent amount of variety and stuff that happens in video games, but compared to the different types of tabletop games, all the way from like RPGs to like dexterity dice throwing games to like very strategic slow playing euro games to like everyone screaming party games, there's a there's a much broader spectrum of types of things. And also like when you start having to take into account like the components, the interface between a a person and a video game is either like mouse and keyboard or a video game controller or a touch screen basically, with a few exceptions. But then like in board games, you could have any number of like custom created plastic pieces or you know you have dice and cards which all have different things you have to think about when you're when you're designing with those. The amount of design space that was available in board games was much Bigger than I expected,
1: and so how has that kind of influenced you know your your thought processes and your uh, your designs?
0: Is it do you find that freeing?
1: Is it more like oh good lord I don't know where to start, or or is it really no no effect?
0: Well, in many ways it is coupled with this other thing. There's there's this other thing that I kind of did expect, and coupled with the the breadth of everything, it it made things more liberating. So compared to video games where all the the rules are kind of kept up by the computer in the game engine, so they can be whatever you want to be, as long as you can code it. You know, those are the game rules. But for a tabletop game, the game rules have to be upheld by the players, and so you have to have rules that make sense to a human and that can be performed and maintained by a human. So that's like a um, that's a constraint. But I think that constraint, coupled with the the breadth of different types of things that you can do. I think that makes the tabletop design space much more interesting than, I guess, the video game design space where maybe there's a smaller breadth of different things, but there are fewer constraints on like the actual design part about like the, the mechanism design. And so yeah, I, I think it's more interesting of a design space, actually.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I really enjoy how you have so many practical constraints that you have to take into account when you're putting together a design like mark was saying where you you can't overload your players with with the game with a game that requires them to you know keep track of all these things because they're not going to be able to both do that and you know make their choices on their turn and then there's the usability aspect of it to make sure that the pieces that you're providing them you know convey the information as concisely as possible it's really a neat problem tabletop design uh, poses to you which is really cool
1: it is surprising the hats uh, that you have to wear in you know doing tabletop design it's not just the rules you do have to take into account the physicality you know of the the pieces and or the cards or or whatever it is and and so it, it's definitely very helpful if you can kind of have a solid background in, or at least be willing to learn, kind of information design and graphic design um, so you can have that help not only your prototypes but also inform, you know, your actual design. You know, something like, I don't know, like Glory to Rome. You know, the idea of you know, using all four sides of the card for different things, is you know very novel uh, when that game came out I, I believe that was the first that did that I, I might be wrong about that at least it's the one that popularized uh, the ability to, or that multi-use cards uh, in, in four ways like that to so be able to get that information on the card in a way where it would even be playable you'd have to have at least a monochrome of you know graphic design ability to pull that off and so yeah you do you do have to think about things that you don't have to think about in other like the video game space or maybe some other spaces like that so for burke did anything else kind of surprise you as you started to get into tabletop game design
2: yeah one thing that really did surprise me as i got to know more of the you know going to unpub and and seeing firsthand designers and um and publishers you know interacting it's the sense of community that the hobby game design market has it's it, it amazed me. I, I assume there would be more competition between designers and between publishers, but there's a lot of working together. I guess maybe the space is you know large enough right now to where you know there's enough to go around, but. I it just amazed me that if you came across a design that didn't work for your company as a as a publisher, well, I know someone who this might fit with. So let me just go ahead and forward that design on, or contact them and let them know. And I thought that was a really cool aspect of, of the industry as a whole. So hopefully that won't change anytime soon because I think that's really nice, really cool.
1: Yeah, hundred percent agree. And that that was very surprising for me as well. Uh, you know, coming in d- designing and seeing how the vast majority of people in the industry are just really nice people. I mean, still, you know, a lot of them are business people, uh, hopefully. Otherwise, they're probably not doing so well as a publisher or they're getting very lucky. But they're, yeah, just genuinely want to see kind of the industry succeed. They're not necessarily like a alpha, you know, me first kind of person. Now, there are some out there. Uh, It's not, you know, a perfect industry. By and large, yeah, people are just, you know, very pleasant and willing to work with you and, very kind, you know, point you in a different direction if if they think there's someone else out there that would be a better fit in terms of, like, looking for a publisher, or even if the publisher's trying to sell you a game, and you're like, well, you know, I kind of like this stuff, like, and they might even point you to someone else's game that they don't even publish, and they'll be like, oh, go over to, you know, Z-Man Games or whatever, and, and try to pick that up, you know, I played it myself, and I really enjoyed it, you know, things like that.
2: So, Matt, so we've we've been talking about how we got into it, so how did you get
1: started? Hey, I'm the one asking the questions here. Yeah. <laughs> We're hijacking this podcast (laughs) right now. (laughs) Yeah. As I was uh, typing up the questions uh, a couple days ago, and I was thinking about my own answers for some of these, and I kind of dredged this memory up uh, in middle school where my my friend Shepard and I, we used to trace out new Mega Man levels on graph paper at lunch. We love playing Mega Man. Um, I can't remember which one we played. I, I think it might have been like Mega Man 2 or 3. I don't know if it was the original Mega Man. But we played a bunch of them. And I know they have a, a bazillion of them now. Yeah, we just enjoyed the game so much that we you know, we would, you know, uh, graph paper and, and uh, p- pencil. And just, you know, draw out level design during lunch. I, know, I wonder what happened to those. It's It's been... So long. I, I don't know if they're still sitting around somewhere, if they got you know thrown out or or what. I would love to to find those. I'll have to, I'll have to ask Shep see if he's, if he's got those anywhere. Didn't really do anything in the the game space. Not even play games until after college, when somehow I found Flux on Amazon, and it's like oh that looks like fun and. Yeah, you know, we ordered it, and my my wife and I we played it, and we had a good time. Now I know better, and I don't really like <laughs> Flux anymore. Uh, but I I am thankful that it got me back, you know, into the hobby. And uh, it was actually the first Escapist Expo, uh, not the one that you went to, Burke, but the prior one. Uh, they ha- they were supposed to have a game design competition that was originally on the docket of you know for their conference, and then they dropped it. I think probably because they didn't want to manage it or they didn't want to or they couldn't get enough interest something like that and so but i was looking you know i had played a bunch of games at this point you know a lot of the gate so-called gateway games and I was looking at that, like oh game design that's interesting i don't know maybe i can come up with something and i just tried to think of something i think like my first thought was like a soccer game or something like that because i was playing soccer a lot at the time Yeah, so there wasn't any competition, but I went to the Escapist Expo. Uh, I met Chris Kirkman from Dice Hate Me Games, played Compounded before um, they Kickstarted it, uh, and that was really cool. And then just looking around, and it's like, okay, well, here's this local guy who runs a publishing company and is putting out these games. And look at all these games that Game Salute actually had a booth, and they ran the game library that year. And I was just looking at all those games, like, wow, this, this is this is amazing. All these different designs. And my wife and I played Sunrise City for the first time. And then we went and bought it because we liked it so much. And at that point, it's like, okay, I mean, it seems like people are doing this thing. I think I, I think I want to get into it.
2: Yeah, I, your um, <laughs> your memory about designing levels just dredged up one of my probably the first thing that I did. I, I would go down to the local arcade and play a lot of Pac Man and Miss Pac Man. And I decided, you know, I could, I could do a version of this. <laughs> and mine was Vampire Pac-Man. <laughs> and so I drew out all the levels and then went down to the local arcade and said, okay, who makes these games? And will they buy my notebook with all these sand drawn <laughs> levels? <laughs> and they looked at me like I was crazy, rightly so.
1: <laughs> all right, so we're going to flip the last question. So instead of what surprised you, so Burke, what about tabletop game design has kind of been what you've expected?
2: Oh, I thought about this one a long time. I was trying to figure out what thing about it that, when I went into it did not surprise me and i and I, the only thing I could come up with is that it is it's hard. it 's hard it's it 's work right Once you get past the inspiration side of it there 's a there 's a level taking it from that inspirational piece to a working game can sometimes sometimes be work. sometimes you get lucky. It takes you a couple of weeks to produce something that sells, but.
1: I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about.
2: <laughs> but usually it, it takes a little bit of effort, so, so it's like a job. But, but it's still a fun job, regardless. But that, that's probably a thing that didn't surprise me that it's, it's not like there's some magic thought that you have and the game comes out of your brain completely, fully formed. That's probably a thing that turned out to be exactly what I expected it to be. But I enjoy it, regardless.
1: How about you, Mark? what did, what, what was uh, what expectations turned out to be correct for you?
0: One of the things that I was anticipating the most, yeah, was that. So, let's say hypothetically, you just spit out perfect ideas nonstop. If you spit out a perfect idea and you're making a video game, you then have to spend months or years or a lot of time programming the code that's going to execute that perfect idea. If you have this hypothetical perfect idea for a tabletop game, the the time between the idea, and when you can actually like see if it is as perfect as you think it is, is a much smaller amount of time because there's, there's no programming time involved, things like that. So the barrier between iterations or like the time between designing and like actually seeing how your design stuff works out is is much tighter and much faster because there's not this extra layer development. I mean there to some extent there is development, but it's not to the same extent as you know writing thousands of lines of code. And, and so just that that tighter circle of iteration, the smaller gap between design and in playing the design is, is what I was expecting and that has definitely turned out to be the case unless you are just the fastest programmer in the world you know programming like doom <laughs> in an afternoon
1: <laughs> yeah you're a you're a savant at that point yeah yeah that, that's uh, you know I hadn't really thought about it like that but but you're right it, you won't get to a finished product necessarily faster but you will get to something playable and something that has the core that you're looking for much much faster yeah uh, yeah. yeah that's yeah that's a really good point
0: point. and, and it it's people who who spit out these perfect ideas you know like i tend to do and just because i can play it perfectly in the first first week that i come up with it
1: Wait, where have you been hiding those
0: <laughs> <laughs> those uh those are um I don't know. You say <laughs> no answer. Yeah, <laughs> i
2: was gonna say uh, I think the computer game industry has has been picking up on what Mark was saying, and and, and I've read that a number of shops have started having their designers create tabletop versions of, of the experience they're trying to program so that they can rapidly figure out what the core of the game is before they spend all, these, all the resources that go into art assets and into you know, testing, programming, and all that. That's, that's been an interesting sort of melding of, of the two sides of the game hobby uh, industry.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the bigger named video games that has had a pretty significant board game release lately was that Bioshock game. I yeah. I know that other games have done that, but that one was like they had more publicity and now uh, Portal is having one. You know, I think that that is becoming more of a thing that not just for the prototyping stages, but then they go ahead and like finish up the designs and make like a real board game that has a similar experience. Obviously, it's not going to be the same, but I think I've seen that more and more lately.
2: I think they see that there's a good crossover there between the computer gamer and also the tabletop gamer, that they're not actually ex- necessarily or actually two separate people, that they're actually just two different aspects of the same person.
1: We're gonna transition into our main topic for this episode. We are gonna talk about getting started with designing tabletop games. So the first the first question here is if you have a new idea for design, what is the first thing that you do when you have that new idea so burke first we'll go to you first
2: now the first thing i do is i grab my notebook i have a design notebook that i keep nearby um, and also have google docs depending on what my current situation is where i'm where i am which is more convenient but what i like to try to do is just to take everything about that idea that i can possibly think of at the moment and just put it down on paper so that um, I can you know continue to sort of noodle on it and and to play around with it sort of in a you know maybe sort of a mental exercise to figure out if there's a game there or how I might want to tackle it. But that's the first thing, and I'll I don't know pages of stuff sometimes. it just depends on the on the on the idea itself and how you know how deep it is. Sometimes it might just be simply theme mechanic question mark. <laughs> you know, what, what, is there something in here? Is there a game in here? Is there a way that I can twist this around or find a unique angle on it sometimes i'll move on to doing something you know like going to like an early stage prototype where it's you know just i have a bunch of components sitting over here next to me and i'll pull them out and start playing around with them or writing on blank cards that i have and other times i'll just let it sit for a while and then come back to it, it just really depends on how the what state it's in when i'm writing it down
0: do you when you write in your notebook is it like you're writing words, like, in sentences, or do you have, like, pictures and, like, arrows and stuff? Or how, do, yeah, how do you structure your ideas? Yeah, in your Yeah, so
2: I, I do. It, it's a, it's a, mostly words, but sometimes it's pictures. You know, like, I have, like, a lot of stuff written on this, these pages with a couple pictures. Um, and then other times it might be, you know, just sort of an interaction diagram with how maybe resources move around inside the system. It, it just depends on how I'm thinking about it at the time.
1: So do you find that an interaction diagram, is that useful? What specifically do you try to map with one of those?
2: Usually I like to map out the, the economy is where I think that it, it comes the most useful, trying to figure out where, how the resources that you give the player move through the game and how they transform through gameplay. And that's usually what I'm trying to capture when I'm doing those kinds of diagrams. It's still uh, an ongoing process. I'm re- refining what about those diagrams is actually useful. Often it's just a way to, to just doodle and try to build more ideas from that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's pretty funny because that's like exactly the same as my answer. I have a notebook, and usually I just I write out like maybe one sentence about what, what kind of the core hook to the game is. Then after that, yeah, if I have more ideas, yeah, I just write those out. Part of that is so I can give the idea some coherence, but a lot of it is so that once I have it written down, I don't have to spend any more effort remembering what it was. And so then I can go ahead either thinking about the next thing or something like that. But I, and I also do the diagrams. I, I've always called them just um, noun and verb charts. I have, I write the nouns, which are like the parts of the game, like cards or dice or tokens or whatever. And I put those in little circles and then I draw an arrow from that circle to a circle that has another noun in it. And I write like the verb of how they interact. So like, tokens would have an arrow pointing towards uh sheep or whatever and then like the word the verb like buy so tokens buy sheep and then i try to fill that out so that all the parts of the game have you know multiple interactions with different things and that that's kind of how i make a preliminary gauge about like are are there rich interactions or is it just like this one thing it only it only ever touches this other item in the game, so maybe maybe it needs to have more functionality. That maybe cards can be used to buy sheep in addition to the tokens. Otherwise, sheep are just kind of sit down there, and they only really are part of the game if you have tokens or whatever. So yeah, I use the the charts just to to make sure that things are interacting in ways that I think seem interesting, and to see how many different options there are for the different parts of the game. But yeah, so my my notebook looks a lot like yours, except for I write with bigger letters.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah burke your writing was very small there when you're uh, holding that up to how the camera I,
2: that's how i encrypt my ideas <laughs> if, if no one can read them
1: <laughs> yeah I, I do something uh similar i i just i have a google doc where i'll i'll dump out whatever it is that i'm thinking of and i don't generally don't keep a notebook like a physical notebook um my google doc is my replacement for that and at the moment it's like 30 pages of different ideas um sometimes it's just nothing more than a mechanic like i have this idea for a worker placement game that uses tiles where you can put them on top of others but it's going to cost you more you know the more that are there and you can lock it down by putting two back to back of your own and that's it yeah you know, i don't have a theme i don't have any like right. anything beyond that and that little thing right there might be completely broken i don't know i haven't haven't thought uh, too much more about it at the moment, but it was a way to to get it out of my head, you know, like Mark said, and to get it quote unquote on paper, so I can you know focus on other things. And I think I think that practice is uh, really important for designers to do, so they can focus on whatever their current design is and not get distracted by. You know the the new shiny uh, idea uh, that that they have, and that's something I think earlier on in the life of, of the the group, some of us were bad about. Of like just, well, you know, I ran into a, a roadblock with this one. I'm just going to jump to the next new thing and never finish anything. Sometimes that can work. You know, if you if you have some idea that is is just burning a fire, you know, in your in your brain, and you're just you know, I. I'm feeling really good about this. I'm just going to, I'm going to go with it and we're going to see what happens. But other times, you know, you were so close on something else that you were working on and now you got distracted, you know, you never go back to it. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that practice is uh, a really good one to try to get into uh, as a, as a designer and getting your ideas out, let them roll kind of in your mind a little bit more. I know some, this is going to, transition to our next question some people they they say you know get your idea to a paper prototype as soon as possible and play test it i'm actually the opposite on that i i I prefer to you know write the idea down or type it up and then walk away from it for a little while let it sit and when i come back to it you know a couple weeks later usually i'm gonna have more to add to it or i've thought through it more a lot of times, I'll you know, without a- ever putting it down on, on the table, I'll I'll realize, oh crap, you know that thing that's not going to work. Yeah, but instead, we can go this direction. Maybe, maybe that would work, you know, a little bit better. I think there's a lot of benefit to, to waiting, you know, before you actually prototype something, uh, and when you after you had that initial idea.
2: Yeah, I would <clears throat> I would agree with that, and and I often find that it's part of my process. I I don't know. It's when I um I wake up in the morning and i'll have whatever ideas that i went to bed thinking about whether it's i played a game that just really cooked my brain or just kind of caught on i'll wake up the next morning and i'll have a lot of ideas around it so i rush and find my notebook (laughs) and start writing things down so letting my brain percolate on it sort of offline works out pretty well for me as far as generating ideas we can talk about you know, going from the idea to full, fully fully implemented. That's a whole other thing, but
1: right, and that's going to be the next question too. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so, Mark, how, how long do you normally wait between when you get an idea and then putting it, putting it on the table? Is it, is there a typical kind of time like gestation period, or or does it just kind of depend?
0: I, I feel like I'm super slow like especially compared to other people in the group when I see like they come to the the meetings and they have like a, a different game idea to try out like every month or two and then I have like three games over the span of three years or whatever that I'm that I think got to the point where I actually want to to try them out because yeah so I, I do a similar thing as you do Matt. I, I write this stuff down and then I leave it and when I come back to it either it's kind of developed more and I've got more stuff to add to it or maybe i can see it from a different perspective and i'm like well that's probably not going to do what i want to do and then then i just decide let's let's just leave this one on the paper and not really go any further yeah and it's got to when i come back to it it's got to still have like a hook that i think is neat to it and a lot of times initially i'm like oh this sounds really cool but then when i when i tell it to myself like a month later i'm like oh well that's not really much different than any other thing that is out there so so yeah a lot of them just die after I write them down and look at them a, a month later.
1: How about you, Burke? Would, uh, you know, what's your typical time between idea and actually getting it into a prototype form?
2: Well, I mean, it can vary. If it's a, an idea that seems like it's got some legs and I've written quite a few notes on it, I'll try to sit down and at least start playing around with the pieces and see if that further you know, expands the idea by, by taking it from mental down to a physical state. A lot of times, before I even get there, I I will spend a fair amount of time continuing to think about it and, uh, if you will, daydream about what aspects of it to to move forward on. If it's a really good idea, I might let it sit for, you know, three days. Be very specific. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right. Wait three days before you call your game and see yeah. if they're interested. Yeah. Uh,
2: or, or count to ten before you prototype. That's usually a good. <laughs> very but good advice. Yep. To, but to Mark's point, it's, it's probably better to, to wait a little while, let it sit, let the, um, sort of the passion of the idea cool just a little bit so you can look at it more, uh, in a more logical way to see if it really has some legs or if it just felt cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I've had ideas that I initially was like, oh, man, that is awesome. Thank you, brain, for giving me that idea because that was, you know, that's beautiful. And then a month later, like, what in the world? That No, that's stupid. That yeah. That's not going to work at all. And so, yeah, I think I saved myself a lot of aggravation by yeah. not doing a prototype immediately and just, yeah, letting it rattle around in my subconscious and seeing uh, seeing what else my brain can kind of contemplate about that thing. All right, so after you have your idea and you've decided that, okay, it's time to make a prototype, what's your method of making that that leap from idea to prototype? So Mark, we'll start with you.
0: Yeah, a lot of times I'll just draw some stuff on some card or some paper, and I'll I'll kind of play through the motions by myself pretending to be like, Multiple players, or whatever is necessary. It usually it's just writing some stuff down on some blank cards, and it's just barely enough components to actually test out the core. Mechanism that I want to see if it works. Yeah, I'll, I'll just play it solo until I've got it figured out enough to know that it won't like immediately break when a real person tries to play it. And every now and then I'll like you know take components from existing games if if it's kind of got the same sort of needs like like Uno cards if I just need a bunch of numbers and colors things like that. But yeah, usually it's just yeah the bare minimum required, and then I kind of play it solo as much as possible.
1: All right, how about you,
0: Burke? What's your your
1: yeah. method?
2: Two methods. One is. Uh... It is it similar to what mark was, was one's explaining. good one's bad yeah. yes actually i would say one i would not advise but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I, I will sit down with uh i have a bunch of blank cards and if i'll write out numbers on them whatever it needs to be i've got rage decks just a variety of different things pull out the components i need to sort of play through the idea at its barest stage to see you know ba- or the barest uh, components to see if it actually will work out but then there are other times when I will indulge myself, <laughs> pull out InDesign or Inkscape and actually do a little bit of fancier prototype. And and sometimes I do that to kind of keep if if I've been working on something for a while to try to keep my motivation going if I feel like I'm flagging. But it's a it's it's a dangerous thing to do because you don't want to because you putting in so much effort into the prototype at a stage when it's not warranted can make it hard to walk away from. So as long as you can do that, I think it's okay. But if you have trouble putting aside work that you have or time that you've put into a particular thing, or to be able to see beyond it, I don't advise doing that at all.
1: So you, you said something really interesting that you you find it motivational to make a nicer prototype if you're if you're starting to get like discouraged.
2: Yeah, there have been times when. You know, I've, I've really been beating my head against the wall with a, with a design. And sometimes I'll sit it aside and, and work on something else to kind of let... Maybe something new will come to me if I take a step away from it for a while. Other times... I'll say, well, you know, if I want to go, because I, I kind of enjoy going into graphics programs like InDesign, like Inkscape or working around with the layout in InDesign and creating a, a prototype that looks nicer when it's printed out. And sometimes that can it just sort of reinvigorate my desire to keep pushing through the hard parts. Because when you get to the part where you're doing you know, you're grinding through iterations, it's, it's, it's easy to get disheartened and wonder, you know, if you're going to work
1: out. Hmm. that yeah that's really fascinating. I actually it hadn't really occurred to me that you could almost use the method of of making a pretty prototype as motivation to continue with the design uh, most of the time and, I, and you guys have heard me say this, but I tell people don't make a pretty prototype you've know, you got to wait until it's at a stage where it's worth it. That is a good reason to not wait if if that is something that motivates uh, you.
2: If you can avoid falling into the trap of "I put so much effort into it, I can't walk away from it," you gotta still be willing to just take all that work and sometimes just toss it aside.
1: Yeah, very true. Yeah, I, I, I subscribe to the uh, the MVP uh, philosophy, the the minimum viable product, and and I will do the least possible to finally get it on the table when I'm ready to prototype it and, and actually try it out. Sometimes that is you know grabbing you know Uno cards, rage Rage cards, uh, things like that. I also have some decks like the Rainbow deck and um, the Deck Tet and the Badger deck, which are a bunch of card systems with uh, some interesting attributes to their suits. Uh, And so so sometimes I'll try to test with those. Although I usually find that confusing because I have to essentially have a mental map of what corresponds to what. It's like, okay, what what am I using that symbol for again? Oh, wait, no, it wasn't the die on there. It was it was the uh, the star. Ah, okay. But it does enable a very rapid prototype. But then, yeah, if I have a design where I would have to spit out some type of graphical elements, uh, like cards, I'll type up a script in NANDEC and have it spit it out as, you know, just bare minimum as I can and print it out and cut it up and sleeve it. And I try to avoid doing that until the design gets further along but sometimes you just have to like i had a design that's on hold at the moment i think mark i think you played it the pick and deliver game where you had the nine cards in front of you and okay. you would draft your cards to deliver stuff and and then you re- would replace one of the nine cards in front of you and it would be a higher point value and there was uh so many things that were on the card I just, I had to just make cards in order to try it, trying to draw it out by hand where it took forever because it was like 120 or 150 cards or something like that uh, in order to have enough cards for drafting. But using NANDEC, it was actually fairly easy to to go through and say, okay, I want on every card. I need a number, you know, in this spot and these are the numbers and I need this symbol on these cards and uh, way faster than trying to draw it out, even when you're accounting for printing and cutting and sleeving.
2: Is is that the tool that you use for like your early prototypes of um, of Avalanche?
1: Oh, which early prototype? Which one are you talking well, about?
2: It, I remember there was one where you actually yeah I know there was one that was actually like a, a deck that was pre-printed, but then you had another which actually had the course laid out.
1: Uh yeah, yeah, I use Nandec for that. What I did for that one is I, I made up a background image um in uh, I use Pixelmator. I don't use any of the Adobe products cuz I'm too cheap, but Pixelmator is a pretty good image editing program. And so I I made the background in that, and then I used NANDEC to overlay all the other information needed for the cards. Uh, so that was a little bit of a hybrid, yeah. So just a background image, and then the the numbers, the suits, and yeah, those, those kind of things. Yeah, that that was the uh, what turned into uh, the final game. There was a prior one that was tiles, which I also actually used NanDeck for. You don't have to use it just for cards. You can use it for any size, anything. So I Prototyped a bunch of tiles using NANDEC, and that was a utter failure in terms of uh, a game. And that's okay, because sometimes something good comes out of that. So, uh, Mark, you touched on a little bit about testing. You said you you, uh, you test solo, essentially. So you want to kind of describe your, uh, your testing methods when you have that initial prototype?
0: Yeah, so usually, referring to my notebook, I have a baseline of kind of some rules, because when I throw down ideas, I usually write them down as game rules so when i when i get to testing i can just look at my notes and they're basically laid out as rules sometimes i have to like circle the ones that i actually like and you know flip back and forth to remember what the actual rules of the game are that i decided were fun and yeah then maybe i'll have just like even if it's like a card game that would eventually have tons of cards i might just have like five cards out just to see if that thing that i'm trying to test would work I remember I was, I was making a game where um, each card was a little monster that had different attacks you could do based on um, based on die rolls and stuff like that. And you had the ability to level up some of the moves so that your monsters could get stronger. And I knew that if that game became like a, a real game, it would need to have several monsters. But I just printed out like two of them, which is enough for me to, to battle them just to see if even the way that I had rolling dice to help select your moves and how to level up stuff, just to see if that... It even functioned or if it just kind of spiraled off into a, a big black hole that doesn't even really work so so you just
1: wanted to have a, a uh, i guess i call it a sliver of the game just to test it out to make sure that it was worth trying to push on from there
0: yeah so like the smallest part of the most important part of the game is what i try to test whatever whatever that might be if it's like a a bidding game than just figuring out if I have like a, a, a twist to a, a usual bidding mechanism, just figuring out if that if that twist makes it so that it can even function as a game at all. But as soon as as soon as I decide that it's not immediately broken, then that's when I would be you know, I would bring it to a place where multiple people can look at it. And even if it's still not fully playable as a, a game experience, if that core mechanism is playable enough that you can communicate the idea of what a, what's the supposed to be, then that's enough to show to people. But before then, it's just me playing with a like handful of cards and dice.
1: How about you, Burke? What's uh, you know, that, that initial prototype? How do you uh, test it?
0: Um, often,
2: yeah, solo playthrough just to kind of figure out if it's working. I don't have anyone here in my home who's who I play games with, so it's just usually just me. And then I'll take it in, of course, to one of our design meetings when I'm comfortable with it. But really, One of the things that I've challenged myself with going forward is to put my designs on the table sooner, sort of break through, and just get it out there when it's a bit more raw in front of you guys. I think I tend to hold back a little too long before I get it out there on the table. That's my uh, um, self-improvement moment, (laughs) to get that out there sooner. Because I think there's a a lot of advantages to getting it in front of people, seeing what really is working and what isn't, besides just sitting there. Playing with it yourself,
1: yeah. There's, there's absolutely there's a there's a limit to how much solo yeah. you know, playtesting can do, uh, and some games are very extremely difficult uh, to test solo. Um, anything with like simultaneous mechanisms or real time mechanisms, which both the games I've been working on lately. So yeah, it's really hard. But yeah, sol- solo testing at home can still be very fruitful. Um, I've had some times when I'll I'll take like the, uh, the personalities, I guess of people and assign them to my phantom players. And i will be like, okay, this, this person's going to be aggressive. And you know, when I, when this person's turn comes around, he's always going to be do something aggressive. This person's going to be really safe. This person is gonna play like me, like I would choose to play. You know, this person over here is gonna be a you know, wild card or something. They're gonna do something crazy, and and sometimes you can discover things very rapidly just by having kind of assigning uh, personas to your phantom players as you are doing that solo testing. Uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely a limit to what solo testing can get you, and, and you just have to uh, get it in front of some people.
2: Yeah, that's a that's really good advice something that yeah i like that idea i don't think i have thought about it in those terms when i'm when i'm doing my solo play testing and i'm playing say <laughs> three different people <laughs> I, I'm, I think i tend to i'm focusing on well, what is their best move at this moment as opposed to trying to assign them a particular strategy to see how um, that plays out that would be a better uh, that's an approach i think i'm gonna try next time i'm doing a solo that's good
1: yeah, I think it for the most part it works well. At least you know in the initial stages. Um, when you get later stages, uh, you'll have diminishing returns effect essentially. But in the, in the initial stages, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty helpful.
0: Some of the personas that I use, I always try to make my dummy players play the worst possible move just to see how. Quickly, things turn really stupid. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it, is that every single
1: made, one, or like just one of your of the, the Phantom players?
0: It's well, it's usually yeah, usually just one. But I try to make that player the player who is purposefully either trying to ruin it for everybody else, or that player who has just decided to make the most incompetent moves and see if it's still possible that they're having interesting or meaningful decisions at all after they make a lot of really horrible. Mm-hmm. Moves because I guess especially at the at the beginning stages where it's almost guaranteed to be broken, I try to figure out where the most obvious points of where it could be broken are, and and it, yeah, the dummy players, like true dummy players. Do you give them names?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, you don't have to tell us what the names. Yeah. Well, usually it's just the big dummy, the dummy player. <laughs> Are
1: are you do you have do you have uh, are you picturing someone in your mind as uh you're using these
0: yeah i i usually play with a mirror so i can have a very (laughs) clear picture of who the biggest dummy is
1: yeah i think that that's also a really good strategy for doing you know the initial solo playtesting how how quickly can the game devolve into something that is unplayable. Now the the one danger with that depending on how complex the design is is you may not actually realize what the dumb move is. If it's a if it's a more simple game it's it's going to be obvious. But sometimes uh, you know if you're designing anything from like a midweight euro up um, it may not be obvious, and, and that's the point where you know, you'd, you'd probably have to open it up to some, some external testers. Um, but yeah, that is, that is a really good uh, technique for kind of finding some obvious flaws uh, very early on in the, the design iteration. All right, so now that you've, you've got your, your prototype, you know, your initial prototype built, you've done some solo testing, most likely, uh, if, if it's possible, and you're ready to put it in front of people. So how do you get over the fear of putting your game in front of people? So so Burke, you you first.
2: <laughs> it's uh, like like I was saying earlier. It's it's one of the areas where I'm I'm working on it, but but yeah, you just have to just have to move forward with it cuz you're not going to move the design to its uh, next stage until you get it in front of people. And fortunately we've got a really good crew that come to the meetings for a game design club. So, I usually feel pretty comfortable when I'm putting it in front of them. So, that's not a big hurdle once I get myself to the point where I'm ready to show it. But like I said, I, t- I tend to hold on to it longer than is than is necessary. But yeah, I don't have a good a good answer for that one, I'm afraid.
0: I think a lot of it comes from just the experience of having done it a few times. And if you if you have already done a game that you think turned out okay, that kind of gives you the confidence to maybe think, oh, well, this is not going to be the one game they remember me playing out, and if it if it turns out that it sucks, they're going to think that I'm the worst game designer. So if if you <laughs> yeah. have any sort of past histories or just experience putting stuff in front of people, uh, I think that makes it a lot easier to put something bad in front of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I, I think that's very fair. Yeah. You, yeah. It, it's definitely helpful like you know, burke like you mentioned that you know, I, I do feel like you know we have a good uh, group of designers who are caring but honest, you know, yeah. not afraid to to tell someone what's wrong but not going to try to just dump on someone. Like we had someone who had a zombie game. Um they came to a meeting uh, once at Atomic Empire a couple months ago for the first time. I I we haven't seen them back yet. They they might come back. Don't know. It it was it was rough. It was really rough. Uh, and I think um, this designer thought that it was much further along in development than it really was. And uh, Drew and Josh and I play tested it with that designer, and we tried to very uh, gently indicate the true stage of that design. Um, and I'm not sure how well that was received. In general, yeah, I tried to honest but not hurtful, and yeah. that that's a, that can be a, a fine line.
0: Oh, being upfront about where your game is when you throw it out, I—you've reminded me um, in some of our game design meetings. Like someone will come in and they'll be like, "I have this game idea and it's not really working, but I kind of know what I want it to do, and I have some stuff that almost works." Do you want to come, you know, push pieces around the table with me? That, presenting it as that—if it—if it doesn't work, then it's not like we're let down because we expected something. If it works at all, then it's considered a big success. So, right. so even yeah. just kind of under-promising or, or <laughs> at least being honest about the stage of development, I think that, that also can go a long way.
2: That, that's true. I mean, recently, the design that um, that Josh and I are working on, You, Mark, you sat down with us. And we're like, okay, we've got this idea for what this theme is. And we know that there's going to be crowds of people, so we want them to move around, and we just kind of sat down, and just, we started calling it Playstorming, you know, just sort of moving through, and uh,
1: I, I hope I mean, you patented that name, because that's you know, brilliant. No, I
2: think Daniel owns that oh. <laughs> um, I think for, I think he was the first person I saw who, who used it, but I've I've since uh, adopted it because I think it's a it's a really useful tool. That if you can, you know, you've got people that you're comfortable with, and and designers are really good for sitting down and and working through it because you know they're going through some similar things with their design. So you'll get a lot of good feedback and a lot of good ideas. And to how to make, um, to move your design from just that sort of inception stage to something that's playable, which is good. But of course, there's a pitfall to that. I mean, <clears throat> if you don't have a firm idea of where you want to go with your design, you can get off track pretty fast with everyone else having a different point of view and, and where the design should go. But still, it's a useful tool if you can manage it.
0: Yeah, I remember that when we play tested that design that, that you guys are working on, and you were like, I know we wanted to have kind of these cards out there. And there's people, and they need to move to try to get over here. And that was that's mostly what I remember as it starting out. um, (laughs) As we would just kind of we would just pretend like we knew the rules and like yeah. So then you just pick up these people and you just you know they move like this, and then we just made up something as if it was the actual rules. And then sometimes it was good, and sometimes it was not good. Yeah, yeah. That really that really did help. It was neat.
2: Yeah, and we've got all those notes written down, so we'll figure out which ones, you know, to, to incorporate <laughs> into the next iteration. <laughs> but it was good good time.
1: I, I think that that's really a really a good point to be cognizant of where your design is, and that can actually be really difficult. Um, you can think it's way further along than it, than it is in real life. You know, if you have a good handle on where your design is, I think that is a, a really good way to present it properly, and also flat out. Ask, you know, telling people, okay, when we play this, I'm looking for this type of feedback. You know, all I'm looking for at this point, you know, for example, is does it work? Period. Is 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 it worth continuing on? Or it could be something like, okay, you know, I think this is uh, in pretty good shape. Uh, what I'm looking for is uh, if anyone can break it. Those are pretty much the the two endpoints of. design cycle but yeah if you if you can be if you can give uh, some specificity to your play testers and what they what you're looking for from them uh, and that can also help in terms of the type of feedback that you get
2: yeah and it helps them focus their thought process as they're going through and testing your design yeah so so they know what they're looking for when and when they're playing and what decisions they're making in the game
1: Yeah, and to to your point, Burke, about feedback, maybe taking the game in a direction that the designer uh, was not intending, yeah, that, I mean, designers always have to realize playtesting feedback is just feedback, it's not orders. Yeah. Yeah. The players—they may be correct. They may not be correct. I've given feedback that has been incorrect. I've given feedback that has been correct. Um, it's just—it's you know it's up to the designer to take all that input and filter it and find out what actions really need to be taken. Yeah. You, know, you can't just listen to your your playtesters' carte blanche. Um, just yeah. Listen. Listen to what they're saying. And, you know, write it down, but think on it. Let it filter and try to find the root cause of the feedback if there if it's a uh, critical feedback. Right. All right, so you, you've got your initial prototype in front of people, and they've they've played it. They've given you feedback. How do you know if that prototype is something that is worthwhile to continue to develop? And so, Mark, we'll start with you.
0: <laughs> I um, this is a little bit funny because at at the last meeting, I know that I said something that that prompted Daniel to say, "Oh, so you can like predict the future." Because I, I think Drew had asked me about a game that I was working on, and I said, "Oh, I." I kind of had an idea about how that one would inevitably end up so I decided I didn't want to work on it anymore. <laughs> and then he was like, "Oh, so you can you can tell the future now." But yeah, I for me, I do get once I get to the point where the core interactions are working and I kind of know what sort of concessions will have to be made in order to enhance the the core mechanisms from that point i guess i almost feel like i can see kind of where it's heading if if it's heading in a way that i think hey that's the sort of game that i'd play a lot then i keep on going forward if it's heading in a way it's like oh well that means that in order for this to work out statistically it's only going to be able to play you know 3 players and that's not going to that's not going to be a game that i would even play myself so why would i build a game that i wouldn't even play and expect somebody else to
1: to enjoy it so when you're designing a game, you're using yourself as uh, your audience.
0: Yeah, yeah i I basically exclusively only put effort into designing games if I think, hey, that's a game that it would go on my shelf and it would get played pretty regularly. And you know, since I'm not since I'm not doing this as my main profession, I can afford to be pretty picky about what I choose to put my effort into. And that's that's just what I've decided. Um, a lot of that is because. Those are the games that I feel more motivated to finish because when it's done, then it's like, oh, now I can play this whenever I want and it works and it's cool. And But that's also why I have a lot of designs that I, I get started and to kind of figure out what the main thing is going to be like. And I'm like, well, that's neat. Maybe some other people would like it, but it wouldn't end up on my game shelf. So let me just focus on something else that probably would. I mean, it's an arbitrary yeah. decision, but that's the one that I've decided to make.
1: I wouldn't say it's arbitrary, but it is an a interesting distinction because a, a lot of designers do give advice that you should not be your own audience, that you should you know, target an audience which you may be a part of, but you may not. And try to design for that audience's likes and dislikes. And you're kind of flipping that. And you're saying, "Well, if I don't like this, screw this game. I'm moving on to the next thing." Yeah, and that's and that's and that's not necessarily you know right or wrong. that's just a philosophy. And that, but that's really uh, that's really interesting. That it's contrary to you know, kind of uh, some other prevailing advice.
2: And and I would have to say that I probably fall on maybe the opposite side of that. If I have an idea for a game, and whether I'm the audience for it or not, I <laughs> move forward on it. And my most recent example. Was the game I took on Pub 5, which was Hoist the Flags, the real time ship game. <laughs> and dexterity, you know, fast thinking dexterity games, that's not inside of my wheelhouse of favorite things because <laughs> I'm terrible at them. But, You're um, going to love
1: my next game, Burke. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's called Burke's Nightmare Dexterity Real Time yeah, Game. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm looking forward <laughs> to playtesting that. <laughs> I'll try to come up with some decent feedback, <laughs> but, um, but but uh, but looking around the table at the people who have who have played that particular game, everyone was having a good time, and it seemed it it still needs work and it still needs development. But I could tell by the fact that people were enjoying it that it was working, so it's worth moving forward on. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking at the playtesting audience and seeing is it cl- is it clicking with them? Are they enjoying it? And then, of course, we'll tweak as we go. But that's the primary thing for figuring out whether or not, for me, a game is worthwhile and continuing with is if it's resonating.
1: Yeah, I I, I align much more with you, where um, I don't necessarily need to be the audience for my own game. I do try to work on things that I enjoy, but I don't I don't necessarily need to to be the target. Um, I I had a a zombie game that I was working on, and I don't don't give a damn about zombies. I don't play any of them, but this one was sort of on spec for a company. They had a a licensed property they would have attached it to, and so so I wasn't super excited about it, but I also recognized that I was not the audience for that game. I was actually still still talking to them about that, and hopefully something will come from that eventually. But yeah, I... I definitely a hybrid of you know i i I want to be the audience i want to design games that i'll enjoy but i don't have to um if i if it's something you know like like you said burke if people are enjoying it that's good enough for me
0: yeah that's so one of the games i took to unpub five fantasy alpha team number one go which is (laughs) kind of what it sounds like you're you're a team of awesome friends who are like fighting space aliens for um for the power of teamwork um (laughs) and there were a lot of people at Unpub five who were like hey this is neat this is something that that i would enjoy playing and and i enjoyed playing it but then it was it had this uh it was a cooperative game and the ai was kind of controlled around some specific probabilities about the the way the dice were rolled because i was using a six-sided die the way that it played out in probabilities made it only viable for exactly three or four players if you tried to do two players the whole math was completely kaput or if you try to do five it would it would skew off way in the other direction and that was enough for me to be like well even if there's an awesome game if i can only play it with exactly three or four players then when would i ever find time to play that so even though i thought it was fun and interesting other people seemed to like it that was enough of a barrier for me to say I'm going to put this on the back burner until maybe I subconsciously come up with a with a solution to that problem. And if I do, I'll come back to it because it's cool. But I'm going to stop working on that one because that is a game design flaw, I guess. Maybe not really a flaw, but it's a it's a thing that would prevent me from playing it. And so I don't want to make something that I would not play.
1: You subscribe to the um, artiste methodology. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I remember that that one getting uh, some good feedback. I I had wondered what happened to it. All right. uh, So someone comes up to you on the street for some reason. They know that you are a game designer. I don't know how they know this. Who knows? And they tell you. I'm a game designer t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I told you that T-shirt would be in trouble. Um, so, th- so they tell you that they want to start designing uh, tabletop games. You know, what do you tell them? So, Burke, you first.
2: Well, I'd say you know, if you have a passion for it, uh, and, and you really need to have a passion for designing games to be a game designer, you should go for it. There are a lot of resources now that are out there for, um, for people who are just getting, getting into game design that maybe weren't there, say, five, you know, six years ago. So, uh, so it's a really. It feels like to me, it's a really good time to 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 get involved in it. It's got a really nice community. Don't get into it expecting to get rich. Just get into it because it's something that you enjoy.
0: So yeah, I would say go for it.
1: Cool. How about you, Mark? What would you say to this person who magically knows that you're a game designer?
0: Well, I agree with Mark. It it is all all about like it has to be something that you're passionate about because there's there are not as many like extrinsic rewards to to making your own designs but it can be really rewarding in and of itself but i would say hey that sounds really cool and you know like a lot of things if you put in a bunch of time and hard work and effort then i bet you can make something that's enjoyable to play you know but the fact that it does take a lot more time and and effort than it may initially seem like it would that's something that that's easy for you know first-time designers or maybe non-designers to to not recognize
1: yeah that's true um that ties back to something we were talking about earlier that you know it is work and it it is perhaps more work than someone might realize you know from the outside looking in sometimes it's yeah i don't know if you look at a game like no thanks have you guys both played no thanks
0: yes
2: uh, actually, I haven't, but I, I know oh, enough about. It. Yeah, you, we need to rectify that. You lose your Demo gamer card. <laughs> you,
1: you will be in 10 minutes. Uh, no. Um, so so <laughs> No Thanks is you know a relatively simple g- game rules-wise. You know, there's really not a lot of, of rules. I am certain that the amount of work that went into that game is significant. It wasn't that you know the designer just sat down and was like, oh, I'm going to going to write down these rules and uh, let's go test it. And hey, that just works. You know, to come up with the numbers on the cards, to come up with the right number of chips, to come out with... Know the the right rules for just the uh, the mechanisms for what you do on your turn. It's you know it's a relatively simple game yeah. at least rules wise. But yeah, I, I'm certain there's a ton of development that went on. I guess if uh, if someone asked me this or they came up to me and said they want to start de- designing games, um, I would ask them why. And and I don't mean that in a flippant way. I mean that like what is their motivation and. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, what is wrong with you? Why do you want to do this? <laughs> no. Why do you want to do this? <laughs> now it, it was, yeah, just to make sure that they've got the right expectations and they they're going into it for the, you know, with the right mindset, you know, if they're going into it thinking, yes, I'm going to make lots of money. I mean, you can make money, but it's not likely. Um, it's only the designers who sell a ton that are going to make you know the real money. If that's your motivation, then that might, that's probably not probably not a good uh, motivator. Maybe you actually should be a publisher instead. You'll you have the potential to make some money that way. But yeah, that's I, I, I basically want to find out their motivations to see not yeah, so they're not set up for disappointment essentially.
2: Oh well, okay. So I, yeah, I was okay with their disappointment, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, you know, I, I don't want not people to <laughs> get you know disillusioned. I suppose right. I would put it but that no, way. But
2: that's, that's a very valid point. It's like making sure they understand what they're getting into. Right. It's it's, it's important.
1: All right. So the last question I have here, uh, Mark, you're first. Uh, What advice do you have for a first-time designer, something different than we have already mentioned?
0: I think it's important for a first-time designer to, I think there's a lot of people who will give first-time designers a lot of advice. And some of the advice that I would give a first-time designer is maybe don't always heed the advice that people give you, because that can kind of... Cramp up your dreams, you know. If if you really this is like meta <laughs> advice. This isn't advice. This is meta advice. I'm telling you something, but don't <laughs> listen to it. Because <laughs> once once you start like having all these rules that you have to follow about this is how you design games, and this is this is the procedure you have to like play test it this many times or whatever. Sure, maybe maybe that's the thing that works for a lot of people, and maybe even that works for most people, and maybe maybe there are set rules that do produce the best games ultimately in the most cases but since game design from my perspective is a thing you do because you like it and because you know maybe you have this this dream about hey i have this game and i just want to play it so i got to make it first that's the only way i can play it that sort of motivation i think is really good and cool and a lot of times if if there's like a lot of almost oppressive sort of guidelines like when you have an idea you just gotta get it to the table before it's any good or don't design a big game as your first game or play test play test play test you know those sort of things that everybody says i think those probably come from a good place in many cases they might be right but if they make it unfun for you to design then i would say completely ignore those guidelines I'm really great at ignoring advice. That's uh <laughs> that's one of the things that has kept game design really fun for me is how much stuff I can just completely ignore. <laughs> That is your game,
1: <laughs> and that, that's fair. That's, that's that's definitely fair. So, my advice would be: as your first game, don't design a big game. No, um, <laughs> yeah. no you are you, right. I mean, a lot of the advice is really like guidelines. You know, it's yeah. they're they're probably going to work the majority of the time, but it is possible that you have some idea or method that would run contrary to that, and you know, the, the trouble is. Usually, you know, if you're starting out, you don't have the experience to know what you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so those guidelines are are really important to attempt to keep you in moving in a direction that seems to work for most people. But you're right. uh, If it if it's something that takes away, you know, from the enjoyment of of what you're doing, um, yeah, probably try to ignore it and see see how it works for you. You might find out ignoring it is worse, and then you might have to try to come up with something else uh, but yeah that's it's certainly a uh, very good advice how about you burke
2: my thought is yeah definitely start with something small and probably not the thing that you initially want to design you know because that that might be like this if it's this or you know if it's this grand strategy game that you think is going to be your first game you probably should put that on the back burner and start with something small that's got constraints I was fortunate in that the first game that I started working on was part of the 54 card challenge, so it came baked in with, with that 54 card uh, constraint, and that made me think a lot more creatively about how I could take my game idea and actually put it into a physical product, which was really helpful. And I think also another aspect of starting small is that you can get it to an iter- you can get it through iterations faster. Than you can something that's larger. So if you're designing a game that takes you know 15, 20 minutes to play, you can get in a lot more plays, a lot more changes. You can start getting a, a feel for the rhythm of the you know iterate, change, iterate sort of method, which I think is I think it's a really good one. That's what I would yeah. advise: is try to learn it from a smaller stand. You know, pick a smaller game, try that, and then take those lessons that you learn from that, and then try for something bigger that you have. That's like your, your big game you want to design
1: that's a very uh software methodology approach, you know which doesn't surprise me since you're coming from the software <laughs> world, but yeah you know right software' yeah. Are showing yeah r- write your method, you know test it, test your instantiator you know, or write that, test it, you know, do the small stuff and well, the know, building blocks, yeah
2: yeah the agile methodology that that's that's prevalent in software has a lot of good applications inside of tabletop game design
0: yeah and I think I think that your advice. I think that's good advice, especially. Like, <laughs> yeah, so that means ignore it. If, um, if someone's if someone's big idea for the first game is something on par with like Eclipse or something that's extremely difficult, I, I have to imagine that was an extremely difficult game to like tweak to yeah. get all the things right. But if that's like your idea for the first game. You could just go for it. That's your first game, whatever, learn along the way, take forever and maybe never get it finished. Or like like you were saying, Burke, and I think this does have I think this is also good advice. Yeah, like if you hold off on that, design some smaller, easier things, then when you actually go to design the thing that you are dreaming about, a big part of it is that you are now better equipped to actually make it happen. So even though you kind of put it on the back burner for a while what that has accomplished is that now it's something that you you are capable of doing, whereas you may not have even been capable of getting through it if you did push, if you did try to push through it for your first time. So that's to say that my advice is also sometimes advice to ignore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess um, I think that those are excellent points and my advice and i've said this a lot of times i've said this on uh, when i was on the meeple syrup and is to to either find or start a game design group you know when when we started this group this was the smartest thing that i've ever done is you know it's the um knowledge that you get from a group is way more than you will ever get if you're solo yeah. um uh, and and because tabletop games are having such a resurgence, there's probably a pretty good chance of wherever you live that there's people around that are interested. And they, you know, they might be like us, where we didn't yeah. necessarily have a ton of experience when we started. But you, you know, you kind of grow and figure it out together. So we're going to do our last uh, closing segment here. We're going to talk about some group news. First thing is Avalanche at Yeti Mountain is now funding on Kickstarter. Uh, This is my game that's funding. It's coming out from Green Couch Games. It is currently just about 50% funded. It's been on Kickstarter for three days. So that's pretty good. It is running until October 1st. So you've got plenty of time to go back if you're listening to this or at least go check it out. This will be my second published game after wombat rescue and i'm really happy with how jason katarsky the publisher is handling the production of the game and the pro- kickstarter process and really ecstatic about the illustrations that adam uh, McIver has done that that guy is just yeah he's amazing he does everything but yeah so check it out on kickstarter
2: and hands down it's got the best gameplay videos out there. <laughs> <Especially> that, <laughs> the crew, that crew yeah. you recruited awesome it is true
1: awesome. It is true. Yeah, especially the guy who was wearing horns uh, while he was playing. Uh, so group member Lou uh, Pulsifer, his latest game, which is Sea Kings, uh, had a successful Kickstarter last year, and it is now available from Worthington Publishing. I'll include the link in the uh, show notes. And, but that one apparently is uh, being received very well, and production was done very uh, nicely. I'm not sure whether that's on time or whether it was running late or early, uh, but it is now available. Group member Eugene Shenderov will be running a Kickstarter campaign in early September for his new game, Comrades and Patriots. Uh, And that is a casual gamer-friendly game, uh, according to Eugene. I'm not sure exactly which date he's launching. I believe it's going to be the uh, second week in September, uh, but that should be coming pretty soon. Mark, you want to talk about Five Elements?
0: Yeah, so Five Elements is a game that I've been developing for a while. I'm going to be going to MaceCon later this year. That's in Charlotte, North Carolina, in November. And I have a a table where I'm going to be demoing that for a while on Saturday. I really like it. It's one of the games that I made that I would play a lot. (laughs) So if anyone would be interested in that, I will be showing it off at MaceCon.
1: So give the uh, the 30-second elevator pitch in case people want to go find it.
0: Yeah, so at five elements, the world, the era of the world is is kind of coming to an end, and so everything's collapsing. But before the whole world collapses, it's your job to go extract the essence of the five elements so that, so that later on we can rebuild. And the hook is kind of the five elements, whenever their energies are used, rather than being depleted, uh, they just change states. So you yeah. have fire that burns stuff up into earth, and out of earth come springs of water, and water evaporates into wind, and wind blows in storms with the lightning that strikes and catches stuff on fire, which goes to earth, and you know it goes around a cycle. And so there's um, there's dice that have these elements on them, and during the game you're rotating your dice around this cycle, and you use that to, to buy cards and to to make sets and to to extract the essences from your dice. So yeah, that's that's a game that I've been working on for a while, and I'm really I'm really satisfied with with how it's playing right now. And so I'm just trying to get it out there so other people can play it. And I uh, kind of see what it's all about, and and I want to know kind of what other people are, what they what they think about it when they play it.
2: Don't you also have a print and play of it available somewhere?
0: Yeah, yeah, on Board Game Geek, there's a print and play version available. Yep.
1: All right, last piece of news. Graham Allen is looking for people to blind playtest his and his uh, co-designer Cameron's game, The Shadow State. Shadow State is a game of intrigue for two to five players where basically you're trying to subtly manipulate events in the game into your favor. Uh, So if that sounds interesting, contact Graham at TesseractGaming.com. Graham is spelled G-R-A-H-A-M and then tesseractgaming.com. Good luck spelling that. Uh, And Graham will give you more information.
2: So if you do have trouble spelling Tesseract, you should send it to all all possible spellings of that word. That is true.
1: And I'll have the email address in the uh, show (laughs) notes, of course. Excellent. Well, this was a lot of fun, guys. Uh, I think we had a really good discussion. Uh, we, We... you know, shed some tears and came to some some new meanings of life, and that's always good. Yeah,
0: not yeah. bad for a first iteration. That's right. Like, yeah. Oh, hey, that does remind me. Uh, <laughs> really, that. that reminds <laughs> you of
1: something? Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, remember to check out our new podcast. The game designers of Carolina is having a new podcast. So yes. go check that out as soon oh. as you can. As soon as you finish this, go check it out.
1: That's yes.
0: I, I, I'm sorry, I missed that plug. I forgot yeah. all about that guy.
1: Yeah, that's probably advice you should ignore. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right mark if uh, people want to contact you where can they get in touch with you
0: yeah so on twitter my handle is mmark 40 and that that's probably the best way to do it i would i would tweet me
2: how about <laughs> you burke yeah and i can also be reached on twitter as at real burke drew
1: you can contact me on Twitter at Matt Wolf with an E on the end of Wolf, and that is also my Board Game Geek username if you want to send me a geek mail on there. If you have enjoyed this episode, uh, please join our guild on Board Game Geek. Uh, if you go to podcast.gdofnc.com, That's podcast.gdofnc.com. That will redirect you to our guild on BGG because you can't actually search for a guild on BGG. So there's no point in trying to say what it is. So if you subscribe, you can join in the conversation, ask us questions, and generally be an awesome person.
2: And I would also say that even if you only partially enjoy this podcast, if you go to that and tell us how you could even more enjoy it, that would be great, too.
1: If you hated this episode, you can Don't also go. come. No. <laughs> you, you can do the compliment sandwich. You can give us something good, something bad, and then something good again.
0: Yeah. If you yeah. did not like it, you can tweet at Real Burke Drew. <laughs> tell me how i suck no. yes <laughs> and we
1: also have a twitter account for the group which is at gd of nc which of course stands for game designers of north carolina and that will wrap up our very first episode Woo! Yay! Hey! All right. so that will do it for this episode of the game designers of north carolina podcast remember to design responsibly and we'll see you next time